Good evening, good evening. And here we are, chapter 17, making real headway. And chapter 17 is not just another chapter. With this chapter, in a certain sense, we conclude a very large section. And it's very interesting. I'm sitting in front of a tree. And I can literally hear the tree croaking and creaking. Should I be scared that... Uh, there's going to be a piece coming down on me or something? All right. <laughs> we'll find out soon. It's a nice and breezy day over here in Kalkaska, Michigan. Okay. In a certain sense, the very first time that we really see an entire picture in Tanya is here in chapter 17. Because the Tanya is not just a book of ideas. The Tanya is a book of guidance. The Tanya is here to teach us how to live our lives. And in a very realistic and practical way, what God expects of us, what we should be expecting of ourselves, and what is the path to success. One of the challenges of learning Tanya is that it takes a very long time to start seeing the entire picture. It's a very deep book. It's a very complex book, and there's a real system to it. And just like a large jigsaw puzzle, it takes a while to start seeing the larger picture as we start putting the little pieces together. And um, chapter 17 really concludes in a very conclusive way perhaps the largest idea that the author wants to teach us. The ultimate basic message of how to live life as a banity, which is on the one hand such a simplistic message. It's such a down-to-earth, straightforward message. But there's so much depth behind it, which is all the chapters we've been learning about until now. This is the chapter where it happens. Next week, chapter 18, brand new topic in Tanya. Of course, it's still within the larger theme. Of course, we will see a sequence, a continuity. But um, this is the book of the banity. And this is where the author ever takes the past few chapters and brings it home and says, this is the final line. And as I named the chapter, the banity is practical. It's all within reach. That's very much the theme of this chapter. Uh, just by the way, if there's interest, next week I'm thinking, before we jump into chapter 18, which is a new, a new subject, a new theme, I am thinking to do a review class in one hour give a full review from chapter one through chapter 17. I want to maybe capture in bullet points the one, two, or maximum three big ideas within each chapter. So like that, we could kind of refresh on the entire trajectory of Tanya from the beginning until now, and then we'll move on to chapter 18. So um, that's a little idea. But okay, we'll, we'll already see. Sounds like a good idea? So dear friends, chapter 17, without any further ado, let us study. And the author is going to return to the very opening words of Tanya. The very opening words of Tanya, which were even before chapter one. It was on the very title page. The title page was where the author has simply wrote a little blurb, what the book is about. Right? Every book has to have a blurb. Tell me in one or two sentences what this book is about. So the author ever wrote a blurb. And so let us study. Part one, 
Your purpose is within reach. Let's read. The author Rebbe says, now we can understand the verse cited on the title page of the Tanya upon which this book is based. For this thing is very much within reach for you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. What is this verse? It's a verse in the Torah in Deuteronomy. Moses tells the Jewish people that the end of my life has come. And he gives the Jewish people his last will and testament. The last message from this, the greatest Jewish leader who ever lived, is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And one of the beautiful messages that Moses leaves with the Jewish people is, he says this verse, for this thing, the Torah that I've taught to you. Now Moses was the one who brought us the Torah, taught us the Torah, brought it down from, from Sinai. He says, before I pass away, I just want you to know, don't think that this Torah is impossible, is asking crazy things from you. He says, this thing is very much within reach for you, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. For a Jew to live a life as a Jew, as the Torah wants us to, is within reach, it's accessible, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the author of it now returns to the very essential question. The obvious question that you that this verse poses. If you think about this verse, it's very obvious what the challenge here is. Let's read. But this verse poses an obvious question. After all, saying that it is within reach of our hearts seems to contradict our very own experience. How then can the Torah say that it is very much within reach for you? <laughs> if you know, if you tell me it, it's accessible, it's very within reach to serve God properly in action. Okay, that's a fair statement. Because, you know, there's no mitzvah that says jump from the ground to the roof. Every mitzvah then the day is a very, very practical, definable, quantifiable action. So the only thing standing between me and a mitzvah is my laziness. But essentially, every act of a mitzvah is fully accessible, fully within reach. If it's Sukkot, go buy a lulav and can shake it. Right? That's not, that's not too difficult. Light Shabbos candles, eat matzah. You know, all these things are, are rather straightforward. Same thing in your mouth, to pray, to study. These things are very, at the end of the day, they're very straightforward. And it is fear game to say that it is very much within reach for you. But the verse then says, in your hearts, it's within reach for you that your heart should be totally where God wants it to be. The author says, I'm sorry. <laughs> that seems to contradict our very own experience. Right? Our hearts are naturally turned on by physical pleasures, material pleasures, material pursuits. To have our hearts in its place, in the right place, spiritually, that is a very difficult task. So the author ever says, our experience seems to beg to differ with this verse. This verse says it's very much within you. It's very much within reach for you. I don't know. Is living a life of love of God, of awe of God, loving a fellow Jew, to be have all these spiritual emotions, is that within reach? It's a big question.
So some may give an answer. <laughs> and they'll answer maybe will be, you know what? Moses wasn't talking to us. Moses was talking to his generation. And our sages tell us that the generation of the Jews who left Egypt and uh, were in the desert were a very high spiritual level generation. They were on a very high spiritual level. So maybe for them, emotional Judaism was very much within reach. But for us, we're living in 2023. Eh, Moses didn't mean us. So the altar says, no, I can't accept such, a, such an answer. Let's read. The altar says, and the entire Torah is eternally relevant. So we can't dismiss this verse as applying only to the spiritually elevated generation that Moses was addressing. When Moses was speaking, he meant them and he meant us in 2023. And the message of the Torah is that the Torah is very much within reach for every single one of us in our mouth and in our heart to do it. So the ultimate then says, we got a question. Let's continue reading. It is evidently not very much within us to flip our hearts from the urges of this world to genuine love of God. Right? Have you ever tried that? To take your heart and convert the desires of your heart from enjoying a good slice of pizza. Right? <laughs> put put the, That's like an empty box. Right? Fill in the line with whatever your heart gets excited about to being emotionally invested, emotionally excited about God. You tell me that's easy? And the author says, even the Talmud seems to corroborate our experience. As it is written in the Talmud, the Talmud asks, is then awe of God a small thing? <laughs> even the Talmud admits. The ear of God is, is, is a big deal. It's not a small ask. Right, The Talmud itself recognizes that awe of God is no small feat, and all the more so the love of God. <laughs> so the question is, what does this mean? That, it, that it's very much within reach for you, in your heart. And one more proof, the author adds, we're on page, we're on the next page, page 140. Furthermore, our sages have taught that tzaddikim are masters over their hearts. Tzaddikim, but not the rest of us. <laughs> Our sages clearly say, who has full control over their hearts? Tzaddikim. We all know we can't control our hearts. We all know we have instincts, we have impulses. Some are good, some are bad. But could we truly say that we are in control of our hearts? No way. <laughs> tzaddikim, the very righteous people, they are in full control of their hearts. So the altar says, Tzaddikim, you could say, it's within reach for you to serve God properly with your hearts. But for us regular people? So the altar says, how then can the verse state, it is very much within reach for you in your hearts? This is the question. Holina, yes. Go ahead and unmute. Maybe, maybe you can demonstrate to us in the beginning of each class, maybe we should be saying a blessing and have like kind of like, like for study of Torah and setting our intention, which will teach us how to develop love and awe. Because I think the issues that we, I am having 
I am not sure how to do it. And, and since we are studying Torah and doing mitzvahs, we need constant reminders. So I'll tell you very honestly, it's a good idea for us to say a blessing at the beginning of class. But at the end of the day, this is very much experiential. You need to simply try it and make it happen. Um, I agree with you. It does sound a little bit daunting. This chapter is going to clarify a little bit more down to earth what we need to be doing. You know, I'll just tell you, to, after this morning's class, someone called me and said, I just want you to know, Rabbi Dubov, I have started trying to do this, to study and to really try contemplating and then to try to spend time praying. He says, I really feel a difference. Um, I, I see it working. So it's, um, it, it's something which has to be practiced, uh, not in five minutes, you know, as we take it earnestly on our own and something that we have to kind of feel our own groove into doing. Like a lot of real things in life. You could study about it, you could study about it, you could read about it, but at the end of the day, you got to experience it, you got to do it. Um, and I would say the same thing is about this. You know, it's, it is daunting. It does sound a little bit like, you know, how exactly do I do it? The only answer is just, you got to jump in the water. <laughs> you know, the best way to learn how to swim so f- is by going into the water. The Rebbe once wrote this to somebody who said that he has apprehension to start getting more involved in Judaism. He wants to first do a lot more study. So the author ever says, that's like somebody saying that he doesn't want to go into water until he reads every single book and he becomes uh, about swimming. Part of, part of learning how to swim is, yeah, <laughs> go in the water. Get yourself wet. Start, uh, start dabbling. And I would say the, the same thing is over here. It's something which has to be experienced and it's something that we have to feel and find our own rhythm. And it's going to be different from person to person. This is a very personal experience. But, um, but let's, let's read a little bit more on what the author ever says here. Because I think that's, uh, I think that's going to give us more insight. So the author, we have this question. What does it mean? This is the opening question. This is the entry point. This is how the author is going to get us into the punchline of this chapter. It seems that the expectation of Moses to serve God with our heart is, uh, is a little bit not fully uh, realistic, not fully practical. But the author here says something so beautiful. Now, based on everything that we've studied, now we can understand this chapter in context. And the author says, we got to look at the sequence of the, of the verse. It doesn't just say, serve God with your heart. It's within reach. There's a sequence. It's within reach for you to serve God with your mouth, with your heart, to do it. What is the significance of that sequence? Says the author Rebbe. Such a beautiful and powerful words over here. But this is why the verse concludes to do it. Meaning, all that is required is to awaken at least a minimal level of love that practically leads to doing mitzvahs, which is that desire of your heart that resonates on a more subtle plane, in a hidden place in your heart, even if it isn't palpable and doesn't emerge openly as a flaming fire, says the author of it. Moses tells us, it's within which you to serve God with your heart to do it. The author says, you don't need full-blown emotions. All you need is a little bit of emotion. This is something we learned about in the last chapter. 
Last chapter, the Alter Rebbe spoke to us about how in order to be consistently devoted to behavior, to never faltering, at least in behavior, which is what we have control over, thought, speech, and action, we need to have inspiration. We need to have motivation. And what gives us motivation is emotion, passion, love and awe of God. So the author says, if you want to succeed, it's not going to work if you're just going to be pushing yourself or if it's going to be habitual. You got to get those emotions going. When you're emotional, then you've got a lot of good energy to want to do things or not do things that you shouldn't be doing. You got to feel it. So then the author says, but what happens if you can't really feel it? That's a big deal to demand from somebody. Start loving God. Oh, really? <laughs> Have you ever tried doing that? Sounds a little bit easier on paper than it is in practice. So the optimist says, don't worry. You don't need to really have a full-on emotion. You at least need to have the very, very beginning of an emotion. At least an emotion on a very subtle level. We'll call it an emotional appreciation. Which means you're not going to be getting all bubbly emotional. You're not going to be getting livid. <laughs> I don't mean with anger, but you're not going to be getting fired up with an emotion bursting out of your heart. That's very difficult. You know what's a lot simpler and easier? To get to a point that at least your mind will appreciate, will understand that a certain emotion would be appropriate. I should be feeling this way. The altar says that is fully within reach. And that is enough to motivate our commitment to doing another mitzvah and our commitment to studying more Torah. That's all we need. So the author says, you don't need a palpable emotion. You just need what's called in Kabbalah language, the desire of your heart. A little bit of the heart recognizing, getting a little bit moved. And the author says, that's very accessible. And that's, that's possible. Let's, we'll continue right now. Hello, Hillary. Hello, Fran. And I want, Hillary, I'm happy you're back again. I was getting a little bit worried for you that maybe, uh, maybe you fell off the Tanya bandwagon. Mondays are challenging. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm here, so I'm okay. excited. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. I'm very glad you're here. Okay, wonderful. So the author says, now, this is very much within reach. For you to get at least this minimal level of emotion, that's fully within reach and easy for any human being who has a brain in his skull. If you've got a brain, you could at least get to this level of emotion, a subtle emotion, an emotional appreciation. It's not going to be an emotion bursting out of you. You're not going to feel the emotion. You're not going to get emotional about it, but you'll have an, you'll, your heart will be able to appreciate an emotional appreciation. For you are the master of your brain. And using your brain, you can contemplate whatever you wish. The author says, you know, we don't need to expect from ourselves. Moses didn't expect of us. The Torah doesn't expect of us to live a life that our Judaism flows from a place of tremendous passion. That's very difficult. You cannot say with a straight face in all earnestness. 
that that is within reach, fully within reach. You know it is within reach? Within reach, and what we do have control over is our brain. We have full control over what we think about. And there is a very strong truth about our brain. Whatever we spend enough brain power, enough brain time focusing on, we will start getting interested in that thing. And we will start having at least an emotional appreciation, at least an emotional attraction towards that thing. Now, maybe we're not going to get emotional about it with these very bursting, palpable emotions, but the heart will always react to the obsessions of the mind. So if you simply spend enough time reading news about politics, you know what's going to start happen happening? Your heart's going to start getting a little bit into politics. If you spend enough time watching and following sports, the Tigers, your heart's going to start getting into the Tigers. If you spend enough time studying and thinking about God, God is going to stop being a theoretical concept. God's going to stop being a theory. It's going to start being something the mind and the heart start appreciating. Are you going to get emotional about God? Not necessarily, but that's okay. You'll at least start getting interested in emotional appreciation and a desire from the heart to want to connect to God, to want to do a mitzvah. And that's all you need, says the author of it. You don't need full-blown-out emotions. You need at least this bare minimum. And this bare minimum, not only is within reach, the author of it uses a word that he hardly ever uses. I don't think he ever uses this word again in Tanya. It's easy. <laughs> you know, if the more you learn Tanya, the more you see that the author of it hates the word easy. Easy? What do you think? What is this? A vacation? <laughs> the author of it never likes the word easy. We're, we're in this for the hard game. We're in this for the long game. We're willing to put in hard work. Accessible doesn't mean easy. Accessible means it's attainable. You could do this. But over here, the author even uses the word easy to emphasize this is, this, is not, this is not a big deal. We're humans. We have control over our brains. We all know the way our brains work. Whatever we think about, we will react. Whatever we start allowing our mind to focus on, we're going to start getting interested. It's a truth. No one's born interested in sports. You watch enough sports, you start getting interested in sports. You start following the players, and you start actually caring who won and what's the, what are the scores. Same thing about politics. Nobody was born caring about Donald Trump. You know why you care about Donald Trump? Because you allowed your mind to think about him enough. <laughs> and now guess what started happening? Now your heart is getting a little bit into Donald Trump, either for the good or for the bad, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, this is, this is basic neurology. If we simply allow our minds to study and think and contemplate about God, we're going to have this reaction. Maybe we won't get emotional. That's a big deal. But we'll at least be able to have an emotional appreciation. The awareness that this is something worthy of investing our mind, our energy, our effort, our time into. And the author says, this is all you need. Let's continue reading. And when you will use your brain to contemplate the greatness of the infinite God, blessed be he, then you will inevitably, right? This is inevitable. You will inevitably give birth, at least within your brain, to the love for God sufficient enough to inspire you to bond with him 
by fulfilling his mitzvahs and his Torah. It's impossible that you will not have this reaction. All that you need to do is begin with a little bit of studying. And then don't just study, but think about that studying. Try to personalize it. Try to connect with it to the point that this is not an abstract theoretical idea, but that you could start relating to it. It starts meaning something to you. And the author says it's inevitable. You're going to start having some form of a reaction from your heart. And that is all that, that's the magic we're looking for. And the author says that's easy. That's accessible. And the author says to get emotional, to have emotional experiences. Don't worry about that. That's not our concern. Our concern is that in action, practically, when it comes to behaviors, when it comes to mitzvahs, we are, we are performing. And that's what the author says over here. And this is the entire human being, the whole of human existence. The purpose of human existence is simply to make sure that we are able to have the inspiration that we need to do mitzvahs. But the deed, the actions, that's what we should be focusing on. Because it is written regarding the mitzvahs today to do them. When it comes to mitzvahs, it's all about today. Meaning, says the author Rebbe, today we live in the world of action. Tomorrow, in the next world, we can reap our reward of complete love as explained elsewhere. Today is where our souls live in bodies. And when our soul lives in a body, you know what the Jewish human life existence is about? It's about doing mitzvahs. Tomorrow, right, metaphorically speaking, tomorrow, when our soul leaves our bodies, that is when we can't do mitzvahs anymore. So existence and the purpose of life as a soul without a body is to be emotional about God and to experience those emotions, emotional experiences. But today, in the world of action, all that matters is action. So the author says, don't worry, don't get, don't get, too, too turned off. Don't get deterred. If emotionally you're not succeeding, you don't need to do that. All you need is the bare minimum. An emotional appreciation that this is something which I do understand is meaningful for me. Something which is worthy of me to devote my life to and then act upon it. And the author says, this is fully within reach. Says the author, Ebbe, this model is fully within reach of every Jew. Why? For the, for the brain naturally and innately rules over the left ventricle of the heart and through the mind and through the heart, it also rules over your mouth and over all the limbs that are the tools of action. Salatabra says this is fully within reach. We can't control our heart. We control our brain. So we could spend time thinking about this. The more time we spend thinking about this, the more our heart is going to automatically have some form of a reaction, at least a little bit of a reaction. That's all we need. That reaction becomes the inspiration and the motivation for us to do a mitzvah. So the author says, let's read again the verse from Moses. It is very much within reach for you in your mouth, meaning begin with study. That's the first step. And then what do you have in your heart? 
when we study with our mouth, what happens? The heart is going to react to do it. And that leads us to action. The point is the action. That's the sequence. That is the sequence of what Moses tells us. In your mouth and in your heart to do it. So the Alterist says this is fully, this is all we have to expect of ourselves. And in a certain way, this is so simple. <laughs> we just have to know that we have this control, we have this ability. And it's essentially very simple. Spend time studying. Spend time thinking about what we study. And it's inevitably going to give us the emotional reaction, the minimal emotional reaction, which is enough to give us fuel in the tank to commit ourselves to doing a mitzvah, to do another mitzvah. And this is what it means to live. This is what it means to be a Bainani. So when you put all the previous chapters we've studied and you see how the author of it packages it all up for us in this chapter we realize being a Bainani, we could do it it takes work but in the words of the author it's even easy <laughs> we just have to study contemplate get our heart to at least have a little bit of a reaction it's all we need and then we'll already see on our own we'll have all that good We'll have all that good zest, all that good energy to want to do another mitzvah. We'll have that positive energy flowing through us. This is the essential message of chapter 17. Simple, but beautiful and profound. The rest of the chapter is a very fascinating caveat. The altar says, there's one little footnote, <laughs> one little detail, one little crease in this whole picture. The author is saying like this, we don't control our hearts. A tzaddik gets to control his heart, which means a tzaddik is in full control of his heart, which means a tzaddik's heart will never desire and never get emotional, even in the slightest, about something that the tzaddik doesn't want it to get emotional about which is an unbelievable thing you know this, this, it, how many humans can say i have full i have full control i have full mastery over my heart the optimist says but we have what we do have full control over our brains and via our brains we can influence the heart but there is one group of people who are lacking this power. Let's read a little bit and then I'll explain. We're up to part two, titled, When Control is Lost. Says the Alter Rebbe, there is, however, one little caveat to the above. Generating enough emotion to observe the mitzvahs is indeed very much within reach for every person, unless we are speaking of someone who is a real Russia. <laughs> now, the author is using the words a real Russia. We've defined in Tanya, what is a Russia? A Russia does not mean evil. A Russia does not mean wicked. A Russia means somebody who is weak. If you are not living up to, to self-control, 
and you give into your weaknesses, that's the definition of a Russia. So to be a Russia is um, not a very damning term. It's very human, but it's a term that does mean that there's room for growth. <laughs> but then there's something called a real Russia. A real Russia means somebody who doesn't only give into weaknesses, not only somebody who has weak moments, but as a repeat offender in a very flippant way. Somebody who deliberately relinquishes self-control and allows the desires and the, and the temptations of his heart, of his yetzer hara, of his evil inclination, of his animal soul to take control. And he allows that to happen again and again. And somebody who ignores the inner voice to try to gain back control. Somebody who ignores the inner voice to do repentance, to repent, to get back on track. That's a real Russia. Somebody who is so careless and literally he relinquishes his own self-control. He allows his animal soul to take over the reins of his life in a very unhealthy way. Says the author, but such a person maybe they'll start losing access to uh, the formula we've just been speaking about. Let's read this. As our sages say, the Rishaim are controlled by their heart. Not, their hearts are not under their control at all. The Altimus says, this whole thesis that we've just learned is based on two principles. Number one, we control our brains. We control our minds. We have full control, full volition over what we will think about. And therefore, we can influence our hearts. But then, there's a certain severe category of Russia who not only they don't control their hearts, their hearts control them. They are prisoners to their hearts. Even when they don't, even when they want to change, they lost the ability to change. They've, we, they've given up control so much that then when they want to grab hold and get control again, they can't even do it. It's a bad analogy. So I don't want to compare the two. But think about the experience of an addict. An addict could be doing things and they know that this is harmful. They know this is destructive. But yet they do it. They say, I can't help myself. A Russia, in a certain sense, becomes like a spiritual addict in a negative sense. They, they, they've given into their temptations so much and for so long that then when one day they want to stop it, you know what happens? They totally lost that self-control. And now they can't even help themselves. They're just going to do it, even when they don't want to do it. Their hearts control them. That's dangerous. They lost their self-control. And the author says, this loss of self-control is a punishment for the extent and severity of their sins. They've done this, these sins for so long, with such severity, with such callousness and carelessness, 
and a flippantness that God took away the natural self-control that every human being has that comes through the brain. And now they are held captive by their hearts. And therefore, when Moses said this verse, it is very much within reach for you to serve God in your mouth, and your heart to do it. There's a little footnote in the Torah. Not actually, but if you look closely, there's a little footnote. And it says, besides these real Rishayim, because they've lost self-control. The Altar says this, the Altar continues. And when the Torah states that serving God in your heart is very much within reach, it is not speaking of these real Rishayim who are considered as dead people, who are called dead even during their lifetime. The Talmud says, very, very, very extreme line, that these real Rishayim, even when they're technically alive, they're dead. You know why they're called dead? Because they lost any sense of control over their lives. They lost touch with their divine soul. So in what sense are they truly living? Let's continue. This, this extreme case of Russia has deliberately relinquished self-control and the power of the divine soul to the point that they are now held hostage to their inner, neg ne to their inner negativity. And the Altar says they are considered dead because in their current state, it is truly impossible for the Rishayim to start serving God properly. You hear this? Right now, this Russia, who has given up so much self-control that now they've totally lost self-control, they can't start the program we've been learning about. Even if they try meditating and contemplating, they're not going to be able to get themselves to a good place. Yeah, of course, they could do a mitzvah sporadically here and there, but they can never get on a good rhythm of a program the way Tanya wants us to. So for the healthy human being, for the, for the average Jew, it is very simple. Simply study, contemplate to the point that your heart will give a little bit of an emotional reaction, at least an emotional awareness, an emotional appreciation, and that's all you need. You're good to go then. That's enough to give fuel in your tank and you're inspired. That's, that's good inspiration to work with. Unless you're a Russia, a real Russia a severe case of Russia, where even when you try doing that, it just doesn't work. And your heart holds you captive against your will. And whenever your heart wants, that's what's going to happen in your life. It's like you even lose a little bit of, of free will a little bit. <laughs> it's crazy. So now one second, how do, you, how do you break out of this vicious cycle? Is the Russia doomed? Is the Russia hijacked by his heart? Is there any recourse? So the ultimate says, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a way that the Russia could break out. And this is like this. Let's continue reading. They can only break out of this stranglehold and regain control if they first do teshuva for the past. There has to be proper repentance. Teshuva breaks the stranglehold of the heart that is holding you hostage and allows you to regain control over your life. How does that happen? Let's read. Teshuva begins this transformation 
by breaking the klipot, by breaking the negative unholy energy, which acts as a partition and an iron wall standing between them and their father in heaven. What did Reagan say in Berlin, right? Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There's an iron curtain. This is what happens. And I'll tell you a little, a little interesting anecdote. I have a friend. He doesn't anymore. He used to live on a dirt road in Michigan, in Detroit, right? We've got lots of dirt roads in Michigan. Growing up, I never knew this idea of a real dirt road. People live on dirt roads. I came to Michigan, yeah. You know, every, uh, every half a mile, there's another dirt road all over the place. And he bought a new car. He told me this little anecdote. He bought a new car. And within like a year or two, the car literally started dying on him. And he said, this car is junk. I bought a lemon. And he was really ready to just uh, sell it for a few hundred dollars and uh, swallow the loss. He brought it to mechanic for one final chance to maybe try to fix it. The mechanic puts it on the lift. And the mechanic says, what's the problem? I'll take a look at the car. He says, everything. I tried braking. It doesn't break. I tried steering. It doesn't steer properly. And the engine, the noises it makes, you'll never believe it. It's as if I bought it 20 years ago. I bought it two years ago. So the mechanic takes a good look at the car. He says, let me just tell you something. There's nothing wrong with your car. You just have a thick, one-inch thick layer of dried mud that's covering the entire bottom layer of your car. <laughs> so literally every single piece of your car's mechanics on the bottom is just totally stuck in place because just covered with dirt. He says, you don't need a new car. You don't even need any fixing. You just need a good power wash. And the mechanic right there and then hosed down very well the entire car. And when it came down, phew, good as new. Why am I telling you this little anecdote? We have an internal system, internal mechanics, and internal mechanisms. We have a godly soul, divine soul. We have good energy. We have a mind. We have a heart. We have limbs. Sometimes what happens is each time we introduce klipa, each time we do something which is inappropriate, which is unholy, we're introducing something negative into our internal mechanisms. And eventually, there's a buildup of, of bad stuff. And they can start clogging the drains. And you can literally have a Jew who's essentially has all these working parts are inside of him. But there's just so much buildup of klipa. You know what happens? Everything got clogged. And he has like an iron curtain that's just stopping his system from working. And that's what's happening. This person introduced so much klipa into his life that now just everything just shut down. And he is now dealing with the situation where even when he wants to regain control, he can't gain back control. There's a partition. There's a partition of klipa standing between him and his father in heaven. A partition stand between him and God. A partition stand between him and his very own divine soul. So what do you got to do? You got to break down. You got to break down that wall. Break down that buildup of guck that's just clogging all the pipes. 
How do you do that? The altar of it says, this is accomplished through feeling heartbroken and embittered in their soul over their sins. The hallmark of klipa is arrogance. Teshuva helps us feel heartbroken, which in the right environment is a very healthy feeling. And we feel bitter in our soul. And when we feel heartbroken, that breaks the arrogance of the klipa. And that breaks the stranglehold of the klipa. And that allows health and human functionality, spiritual functionality, to return. Let's continue. As it is written in the Zohar on the verse, the offering of God is a broken spirit and a broken heart. The Zohar explains that with a broken heart, the impure spirit of the Sitra Achra, of the, of the side of unholiness, is broken. Look carefully there in Pasha Pinchas, Folio 240, and in Parshas Vayikra, Folio 8, and Folio 5b, and in the accompanying commentary of Rabbi Moshe Zakuda. So, here we have the basic idea. For the average, for most people, it is very simple. Simply contemplate, study, meditate. Get in a, to the point you have an emotional reaction, and you are good to go. You are ready to be a Benini. You've got all the inspiration and motivation you need. And the optimist says, this is easy. This is totally human. All you got to do is think about it enough and your heart is going to inevitably react. But the optimist says, the only exception to this rule is a real Russia who has totally lost his self-control. Self-control. And before he could get on this program of this chapter, he has to first do tshuva to get rid of the klipa, which is blocking his, the functionality of his internal system. Okay, how are we doing so far? We're doing good? One final note of this chapter. The Altaba concludes with a very brief, but a very beautiful idea, bringing us into the concept of teshuva, of repentance, from a spiritual perspective, from a mystical perspective, from a Kabbalistic perspective. So let's read. It is very deep, but it's also quite simple. And we'll keep it simple because now is not the place to get too much into it. Let's read. The mystical secret of teshuva. This form of repentance, this idea that we at first, due to our sins, we shut down our ability to connect with our own spirituality. But then through a feeling of heartbrokenness, we restore health to our spiritual self, and we regain spiritual functionality. So this form of repentance is what is called the lower teshuva. According to Kabbalah, according to Hasidus, there are two levels of teshuva. There's a higher form of teshuva, there's a lower form of teshuva. The lower teshuva, its objective being to raise the lower hay of the divine name, to restore its stature from its fall, after it has fallen into the outer forces of evil. God's name, the way we write it in Hebrew, was referred to in the English language as a tetragrammaton. It's a very fancy English word. The tetragrammaton refers to the divine name Yud, 
and hey and vav and hey. And teshuva restores the final hey of God's name when it falls and becomes trapped in the outer forces of evil. So what does this mean? We'll read and we'll understand. Let us read one more paragraph and then I'll explain. This is the mystery of the exile of the Shekhinah, the divine presence. There's something called the divine presence also goes into exile. And the altar of it says, as the saying of our rabbis goes, when Israel is exiled to Edom, which is Rome, the Shekhinah is exiled along with them. The Thomas says something very beautiful. When the Jewish people were exiled from Israel in the very first century of the Common Era, almost 2,000 years ago, and they were exiled to Rome, they didn't go alone. The divine presence that was with the Jewish people in Israel went into exile with the Jews as well. Which is a very comforting, very comforting insight. God is with us in our pain. God is with us in our suffering, in our exile. There's also a much deeper message. We as Jews carry a very heavy burden. That heavy burden is that we have a peace of God within us, which means wherever we go, God goes along with us. And when we go to Rome, we force God to come along with us to Rome. Rome is not just a place, it's a lifestyle, it's an energy. There was the historical exiling of the Jewish people to Rome, and there's a spiritual concept that we sometimes take our divine soul and put it into exile in Rome in a spiritual sense. Let's read. On a mystical level, what that means is that when a person commits an act of Edom, when somebody commits an act of Rome, when somebody commits an act which is inappropriate, it's not an act of Israel, so to speak. It's an act of Rome. Right? What's done in Rome stays in Rome. So when a Jew goes to Rome, what happens? He draws the divine spark that vitalizes his divine soul down into that place. You just brought God into a bad place. And what happens? This divine energy that powers the three levels of the soul's functionality, his nefesh, the ruach, and the shama, they are now invested and trapped within the animal soul of klipa, within the left ventricle of the heart. You've just now forced your divine energy within you to get involved and to be trapped in the act of a sin, in an inappropriate thing. And what happens? It's this klipa that is now ruling within a person as long as he is a Russia and controlling his body, the small city. Now you've just given control to the klipa and his divine nefesh, ruach, and his shama are now trapped and oppressed in exile under the klipa. God went with the Jewish people when the Jews went to Rome. And that's also a scary thought. Whenever we go to Rome, we force God into that exile. And the peace of God inside of us is now going to exile. And we now need to restore. We right now need to redeem the divine spark, the Shekhinah, that we've just put into exile by our act of Rome. 
There should be a final page over here, no? I'm missing the final page. Let me see where it went. Oh, here it is. So the author of it says, but when his heart is broken within him, then the spirit of impurity and sitra is also broken. And all perpetrators of evil are detached, as the verse says. And then the Shekhinah gets up from her fall and even stands firm, as explained elsewhere. So this is the idea. Why does a Russia lose self-control? There's a mystical science to it. Because we've just taken the divine spark, which is meant to give us all of our holy energy, and we've just now put it into captivity. We've allowed our internal klipa to totally take control and to hijack and to hold captive over our divine energy. So therefore, we can start living life from our divine soul as long as the klipa is in control. So when we do teshuva, which breaks down the klipa, we redeem, we free our own divine energy from its captivity, and therefore spiritual health can resume and we can continue doing all this that the Tanya is teaching us to do. But the essential message over here is, what the Altarba teaches us, is the idea that being a Bainani is very human. We have the power to be a Bainani. We just have to put in the effort. And the Altarba summarizes it and gives us the practical steps right here. Study. Study Torah especially the parts of Torah that teaches about God, which is the genre of Hasidus, the teachings of Hasidus. Study it and think about it to the point that we could feel at least a little bit in our heart, a little bit of a reaction. And that is enough, the altar of says, to give us the inspiration that we need to live the lives that we should be living as Jews. At the beginning of Tanya, being a Bainani sounded very daunting, very out of reach. The author that gave us every single chapter was another step in the puzzle, another step in the process, another step of understanding. And here the author brings it home for us. It says, this is what it means to be a Bainani. Learn it, live it, and do it. The author says, within reach, it's human, it's even easy. And now it's uh, now all we're waiting for is ourselves <laughs> to put it into practice, put it into action. And dear friends, with that, we conclude chapter 17. I want to wish you all a wonderful evening. And next week, God willing, the plan is God willing to do a review class. And then chapter 18, another beautiful new topic in Tanya. So may God bless you all. Well, yes. Um, yes. I understand the concept. I think I understand what you're saying, what this was all about. And maybe I shouldn't be bogged down with definitions, but it seems to me from what we said here that we're Bainanim striving to be a complete Bainanim, but we also could be uh, not a real Rasha, but a Rasha striving to be a Bainanim. Yeah, okay? we are on the journey from a Rasha to a Bainanim. We're on the journey. Okay. And that is a very, very normal and good place to be. <laughs> All right. The other, the other we, know, we know where we want to go and we know the steps of growth. We're learning the steps of growth. All so right. yeah, yet, this is a very a real Russia, somebody who is flippant. 
don't mm-hmm. think any of us are that. It's somebody who's really careless and callous and cold and, and doesn't even care to ever regain control and to grow and to be better. So that's, that's, that's where you get into trouble. You start losing your grip of your self-control. Okay, but, uh, and, that's, and, that's not and, the average person. And the final question I have, I, I'm just talking about definitions here so I can understand it. Mm-hmm. You said that, that the Shekhinah is a divine spark. Now, does that, is that the spark? That spark is from God. Is that yeah. true? Or, okay. The, did that spark give us life or does that spark give us the soul of Nefesh, Ruach, and the Shama? Or am I got it all wrong? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's a very good question. That is the, the, the holy divine spark of God that gives life to our divine soul. Ah, okay. And our divine soul is divine. Divinity within our divine soul, within our godly soul. It's our godly soul. And our godly soul has three parts, nefesh, ruach, and neshama. That's right. Yeah, nefesh, ruach, and neshama are the three dimensions of basic human functionality that our divine soul gives us. When we sleep at night, which part of our soul goes to heaven? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's a difficult question. Well, one sixtieth of our soul goes to heaven. Of, of the total, of the parts? total, of the total, uh, nefesh, ruach, and neshama together. I guess so. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, you're a rabbi. One sixtieth of each. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm Charlie. I'm trying to be too specific. I think, but I get. Well, no, no. These, these are good questions, but at a certain point, I I don't even know myself the answer. There, there, there's no answer sometimes. Oh no, it could be there is an answer. <laughs> right. I definitely don't profess to know everything. Yeah. Not, not now, when, when we die, does the um, uh, nefesh, ruach, and the shama together? Uh, go to heaven and the uh, animal soul stay with our body? The animal soul dies. The animal soul is history when you die. The animal soul dies. Animal souls die. Um, The godly soul goes above and the nefesh, which is the lowest dimension of the soul, always keeps a presence with the body. I see. Okay. So when we go to the cemetery and we try to, you know, say our prayers, with our loved ones, that's who we're really communicating. Right, there's a direct link to the soul via right. the grave, because the soul is, is, there's a dimension of the soul that is always present there. Okay, thank you very much. I hope I didn't make it. Uh, no, no, no. Quest, questions are not only acceptable, they're very welcome. Okay. And don't worry, if there's ever a question that I don't want to answer, I just don't answer it. <laughs> no, so you're not about me, Polina. Yes, correct. no, no one knows everything, right? Yeah, okay. sure. I actually now have three questions, but you can choose which one to answer. The sure. first <laughs> question, which I could come up with, there is a phrase, nothing is more whole than a broken heart. Mm-hmm. Is the phrase came from this section of Tanya, or this section of Tanya came from that phrase? That is very interesting because it's a um, it's a it's a it's a common line in American culture, but it actually has very old Jewish roots. Uh-huh. And yeah, it's very connected with this idea. Very good. Yeah, that that there's a certain wholeness to the human that only comes through the brokenness of a heart. And sometimes people are really very broken because they don't have broken hearts. It's a it's a little bit of a paradox. But yes, yeah, sometimes health is only restored. Wholesomeness, wholeness of the of of. Of the of, of the human of the Jew only comes through the broken heart, which is teshuva. Yeah. So so the phrase kind of came from here, from teshuva part. Yeah, from the mystical understanding of teshuva. 
Now, this is not where we're getting the full proper treatment of this concept in Tanya. We'll, we'll, we're going to get that much later on. Okay. Uh, should I ask you more questions uh, related to animal soul versus godly soul? One of the names, I think, for godly soul is Nefesh Elohim, and animal soul, I don't know, Nefesh something. But that implies that godly soul is only Nefesh. No. It's a little bit confusing. The word nefesh could either refer to the entirety of the soul or can sometimes refer specifically to only one part of the soul. So does it mean, first of all, there are five parts to the soul, not three that are listed here. Does Definitely. it mean that the animal soul also has five, like at least three parts? Or right, does it sure only- three parts. Yeah. The reason why we're mentioning three parts is because when it comes to practical human life, we are only engaged with these it's three dimensions. Parts. Uh, what about the fourth one? Aaron the Shabbat? fourth one is considered, uh, uh, considered subconscious. It's not part of the conscious human functionality. Okay, but we can keep feeding it on Shabbat, obviously, yeah. clearly. Yeah. Uh, okay, so my last question. Okay, in your notes, it said Shekhinah is divine presence, but then you use divine spark. What's the difference? So the Shekhinah refers to the way God is present in this world. So there's the way God is present in the world in general. There's the way God is present within each and every one of us. So it's the macrocosm and the microcosm. So there's the Shekhinah in the world, and there's the way that also God is manifest within every single human being so it's a so it's yeah we'll use sometimes different words in different contexts but it's essentially the same idea just one is the way god is within the world and one is with the way god is within every single individual human being so is spark the same as presence because it's not the same it's not the same but there's an analogy to there so there, there is, is energy a, some kind of godly energy right Okay, thank Shekhinah you. Shekhinah is the term used to describe the way God is, is present in this world. The way Shekhinah is, is dwelling in this world. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. All right, dear friends, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. And uh, upward and onward from here. <laughs>